Well, let's pray as we begin this morning. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So we uh, finished our sermon series this morning, seven weeks, eight weeks actually, uh, that we've been in this sermon series on the art of being human. And we do so by concluding a two-week study on heaven, and in particular, what is the heavenly hope that is set forth in scripture, and why is it important to us in our human life here on earth? Last week, we answered three questions. Who is in heaven? What is heaven? And when is heaven? For those of you who weren't here, I'm going to give you Cliff Notes version this morning. If you were here, this will be a little bit of review for you. Who is in heaven? Well, we talked about those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ and trust in him are in heaven. But it's Jesus who gets to set those standards of what exactly that means, not you or me. And for that, uh, I find that to be a big relief. I don't really want that burden on my shoulders. I hope you don't either. What is heaven? Well, in the biblical sense, it's what Jesus himself calls the kingdom of God, which is the range of his effective will. And then when is the kingdom of heaven? Well, according to Jesus himself, eternity is not something that we passively wait for, but rather the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is among us, here and now, through the person and the ministry of Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit. So this view of heaven shatters much of our preconceived notions of a place that we go when we die if we can meet some minimum requirements. This view of heaven actually changes the way in which we live our lives in the here and the now because it gives us an urgency. When we see heaven as something that begins now, we fill our days trying to bring glimpses of glory to everywhere that God places us because of the life of Christ and his work inside of us. But that's only half of the questions that we need to ask. So the other half come today. Where, why, and how? The answers to these questions are, are really, really important to us. Because if we understand how the Bible answers these questions, it frees us to be fully human in the way that God created us to be. So I made the case last week that our eschatology, fancy word, but the study of the end, our understanding of what comes at the end, our understanding of eternity... It informs the way in which we live our lives in the here and in the now. And I believe this thoroughly, which is why it's important for us to strive to understand what the Bible says about the end as best we can. I'm sure that we're not understanding it fully, but as best as we can. I had someone come up to me this week, midweek, and, and say that the idea of heaven being a current reality was really causing her to rethink some things. And I asked, it's kind of messing you up, isn't it? She said, yeah, it's kind of messing me up. And that's excellent. That's actually what we want. We want scripture to mess us up. We want it to reshape our minds and our hearts so that we can be formed and know how to live. Let me repeat that. Man, that is so important. We want scripture to mess us up so that it can reshape our minds and our hearts so that we can be formed and know how to live. Well, here's the next mind bender for most of us. What we think of as the end 
isn't actually the end. And I think we should try and get it right this morning. What if where we go when we die actually isn't the end? We're conditioned to think of eternity in two phases, two simple stages. There's life on earth, that's stage one, and then stage two is death somewhere else. But the biblical authors actually offer us something quite different. They view eternity in three stages. As John Mark Comer, who's been a guide for this sermon series, uh, lays it out so ably, first, there's life here on earth in a body. That's stage one. And that's followed by life after death in heaven or in Hades, with or without a body. The Bible's kind of unclear on that. And then it's followed by stage three, which is the actual end, and that's resurrection. Our most preeminent New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, provocatively calls this life after life after death. Fair warning, friends. This might mess you up. Question number one today, where is heaven? Where is heaven? In our church today, we, we can tend to be a little obsessed with stage number two, what we call heaven, life after death. I wrestle with this all the time. If you're already kind of feeling anxious about this, that's okay. I often think of the five grandparents between Katie and I that we love so much who are, who are uh, not on this earth anymore, the two cousins who had untimely passing, the four miscarried babies that we have in our lives that I believe and I know with all my heart are with Jesus. And I struggle because I don't know what their reality is right now. <laughs> It's hard for me to think that the existence that I have in my mind of where they are and what they're experiencing might not be a full picture. But the truth is, we are exponentially more interested in what happens when we die than the New Testament authors were. It's not a huge interest to them. What the New Testament presents actually when we die is some kind of sleep. That those who have died are still alive in some sense and that they're waiting for stage number three, they're waiting for resurrection. Paul speaks about this phase as being with Jesus. Pretty simple, being with Jesus. Jesus talks about his disciples coming to where he is and experiencing his glory. But neither Paul nor Jesus explain what this means very clearly. But I think it's, it, as I read it, it's evident to me that this is a pretty pleasant experience for people. <laughs> it's a pleasant experience to be with Jesus and to experience his glory. The waiting with Jesus is not unsatisfying. It's peaceful and it's good, but it's also not fully complete. In this month's Covenant Companion, that's our magazine for our denomination. It's really an excellent publication. The, the cover article is a series of stories on several covenanters who, are, uh, who have battled with cancer or can continue to do so. One of them, uh, one of those features was several posthumous blog entries from Covenant pastor Mike Fitzgerald, who passed away this year, really interesting guy who lived with, with cancer most of his life. In this final entry before his passing, he wrote something that really captured me. Here's what he says. This is, this is just a couple days before he passed away. The past few years, we have been using new light bulbs in our house. There seems to be a warm-up period of gradually increasing wattage from when they're turned on until they reach full wattage. I hope the afterlife is not like this. I'm hoping that heaven holds for me an immediate wattage. Don't we all feel this way? 
I mean, don't we want a seamless transition from this life to the next with immediate wattage? The lights are cranking, fullness, completeness, a sense of arriving at the end. Yes, I made it to the finish line and I'm full and complete. Well, I do believe that Mike is with Jesus and he is very joyful in his presence. He is content in his presence. But I also believe that Mike and all of those who died in Christ and are now with him are joyfully crying out for the true end that is still to come, which is the resurrection. I'm quite confident that he is not lacking for wattage right now. But I also believe that he's waiting. We actually read about this in the book of Revelation just a little bit before the passage that was read for us today. John has this glorious view of heaven. It's weird sometimes, but it's glorious. And in heaven, the dead are actually in heaven. They're in this stage two And they're crying out to Jesus. They're with Jesus. They're in his presence. But they're crying out to him. And they're saying over and over again, How long, Lord? (laughs) Not exactly what we were expecting, right? And what are they crying out for? They're crying out for resurrection. The time when Jesus returns and makes all things new on earth. That's right. You heard it right. Where is heaven? Where is eternity? It's actually going to be right here on earth. Yes, as followers of Jesus, we go to the heavenly realm when we die. We go to be with Jesus. But scripture indicates that we don't stay there. As Comer puts it, if Jesus is a ticket to heaven, then he's a round trip ticket. Because at the resurrection, we come back. That's the vision that we see In Revelation 21, when John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, John is speaking of resurrection here. So I want to unpack that for for just a moment. We often read this idea of a new heaven and new earth as this is a new and separate place, that earth is going to burn, it's going to be consumed, and we are going to get to inhabit a new perfect heaven and earth that God's going to start over somewhere else. But the word for heaven here in, in Greek is huranos, which does not refer to God's home in the sky. It just means sky or universe or air or atmosphere. So do you pick up what what John is echoing in Revelation 21? John is going back like baldly, obviously echoing the very first words in our Bible. In the beginning, God created what? The heavens and the earth. When John uses the word new for new heaven and new earth, he's using the word kainos, which, which you, can, you can translate as new, but it's just uh, as often translated as renew, to renew something. John is not seeing a new earth somewhere else. He's seeing a vision of a renewed heaven and earth, a return to the intended original creation in Genesis 1, and it happens here. In the end of the story, it's not us going to heaven to be with Jesus, getting away from here, but rather Jesus returning to and renewing the earth. And we get to join him. Why? Well, that's question number two. Why does God give us this hope for a renewed heaven and earth at the end of things? Well, it's because he wants us to continue our work and our rest for eternity, and by doing so, rule over the earth alongside Jesus 
forever. Don't you see that if our hope were, were only in a heaven that is far off, far away, or a resurrection that's in a totally different place, totally different reality, then there's little point to our work and our rest here on this earth, to our relationship with this earth. But if we capture, if we capture a vision of a renewed heaven and a renewed earth here in this place that we know so well, it will have a profoundly extensive effect on our work and our rest here and now each and every day. What do you do here on earth? The work that you commit yourself to, well, that matters. That matters even without the hope of heaven, even without the hope of the resurrection. Your, your work matters because that's something you can do to glorify God. Even without this hope, what you do matters. But it's even more than that because what we do now can be practice for the renewed heaven and the renewed earth. The most famous passage on heaven is probably 1 Corinthians 15. We often read it at funerals. It's really, really hard to understand at points. It's a super long chapter, and it's haunting, and it's beautiful. And Paul closes this, this really long passage on the resurrection by saying this, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Now you might go, okay, work of the Lord. Pastors do that. Missionaries do that. No, that is not specified here, by the way. It's the work that you do unto the Lord, which all of us can do. This is a remarkable statement on its own, but it's even more remarkable when you realize the backdrop of this passage is not about where we go when we die. It's about the resurrection to come. Our work in the Lord is what Dallas Willard calls training for reigning. Training for reigning. When we work, when we do our work unto the Lord in the Lord right now, we're actually honing skills that are going to be needed in God's renewed world. Hard to get our minds around that, but that's true. God invited Adam and Eve at the very beginning of creation to do what in the garden? To rest and relax, to have a vacation, to leisure, to go to go, to go lounge around? No, to work. To work in the garden. To come alongside him and become rulers over creation with him. And in the renewed heaven and the new earth, it's a return to that original intent. Life on earth here, the work that we do, the way in which we spend our time, is an opportunity to practice for resurrection. It's our opportunity to learn to become co-rulers with Jesus because that seems to be the eternity that is in store for those of us who trust in him. Did you notice this morning that in John's vision of, of the end of this renewed heaven, renewed earth, it isn't a garden, but rather a city? Well, actually, it's kind of both. John's vision of the resurrection involves water and mountains and groves and gardens, but in the middle of all of those things is a city, the New Jerusalem. This is extremely important, and I think it's actually really, really intentional that God would give John this vision and John would, would capture the vision of a city. Um, if we are just returning to the Garden of Eden at the end, I don't know about you, but I don't know how much I have to offer. A lot of you drive by my backyard every time you pull out of the parking lot. It's not like a beautiful place, right? I'm not a great gardener. But in a city, 
there's art and there's people and there's music and there's opportunities. I spend my life, I give my life, most of my life, to pointing people to Jesus and encouraging people to be in relationship with him. I would love to do that for eternity. That'd be awesome. What about you? If you're an architect, guess where there are houses in cities? Do you think there'll be houses in the New Jerusalem? I think so. Do you cook? Well, that's awesome because somebody is going to need to make dumplings in heaven because that's what I'm going to be eating. (laughs) Do you create art? I don't know one great city anywhere that doesn't have wonderful art. Do you garden? Well, that's great because there's going to be fruitful gardening, and I don't think there's going to be any weeds. Doesn't that sound kind of nice? Are you a mechanic? Awesome, because the best of ingenuity and technology, I think we get to bring that with us into the new Jerusalem. Are you into commerce? Good, I think we're going to need those gifts too. I don't know how that's going to work, but I think we're going to need it. Are you a musician? Can't Can't wait to hear what you come up with in the new Jerusalem. Do you care well for people? Are you a teacher? Can you knit things? Do you love animals? We're going to need all of those things in the new heaven and the new earth. It's only going to be, though, an amplified version of the very best work that you do here. Totally life-giving, totally satisfying, totally invigorating. Oh, and resting from that work will be every bit as joyous and amazing as the seventh day in Genesis 1. Is this sounding good to anybody else here? No wonder those are with Jesus crying out right now, Lord, how long? How long? How long? And that brings us to our last question. How? And let me ask it this way. How is this view of eternity supposed to change us? This is the best question of all because it's that, it's that question of formation. We can gain knowledge. We can gain new perspective, new insight. We can go, oh, that was interesting. But if it doesn't change us, if it doesn't lead to Jesus being formed in us and changing us, then it really doesn't matter that much. How is all of this meant to form us? Well, first, I would hope that it gives deep meaning to our work and our rest, not merely as a way to get through life, but as a dress rehearsal for eternity. You get to bring the very best of these things with you into eternity. Not the physical things, not the things you've acquired, but the very best of those skills and the joy that you have in your work and your rest. You get to bring those with you. So work hard in this life for the glory of God and rest faithfully in reverence of God. Because when we do these things, it's a glimpse of what we have to look forward to. Second, It ought to cause us to wonder at God's grand story. I mean, if we have a proper biblical view of a renewed heaven and a new earth, then it ties together the entire Bible from us, from the Garden of Eden to the city of Jerusalem, garden to city. And we see how important we are that God would create this hope for us, this heavenly hope and the hope for resurrection, that he would send his son to save this earth, and to inaugurate the kingdom of God, and then loved us even more that he would promise to send him back again to renew it and reclaim it. God loves you, and he wants all of you.
my dear friend. Lastly, this view of eternity should continually form us into Christ-likeness. It was Jesus who came to live on this earth. And then he died, just as you and I will someday die. And he went fully into death in such a way that if we know him, if we trust in him, we will not have to. We'll simply be with him. And we'll be with him at the correct wattage. But praise be to God that this was not the last act of Jesus Christ. He arose from the dead. And in doing so, he promises us resurrection. The renewal of all things. And I can hardly wait. But I don't have to. Because I can practice now. I can practice eternity now. Because Christ experienced this before me. Experienced life and death and resurrection. And I desire to be formed in him as I await life after life after death. So this morning, as we close this, this conversation on the art of being human, we do so at the most perfect place we could possibly do it, and that is at the table for the Lord's communion. And we get to bring the, the who, what, when, where, why, and how of our heavenly hope to this place. And it is a glorious view of the heavenly hope that we find at this table. We don't find here a ticket to heaven. When you come to this table, you're not going to find some sort of minimum requirements that you have to fulfill. It's not a position or a status that you acquire at this table. But what is at this table? It's a feast, and it's for you. A foretaste of the heavenly feast to come in the renewed heaven and renewed earth. Have you ever intentionally eaten something as slowly as you possibly could in the smallest bites that you possibly could because it was so unbelievably good that you just wanted to savor every little bit of it. You never wanted it to be over, and you, and you feared that if you, if you took a big bite or you took too much that it would just be too overwhelming and you would just have to die because it was so good. Well, so it is here. This is just a nibble, but it's a foretaste. I just want you to know this morning, my friends, this is the good stuff. Let's celebrate at the Lord's table.